Welcome to Category 5 Technology TV. This is episode number 476 for Wednesday. Almost did it. Almost did it. It's the 2nd of November 2016. That is hard to believe. We're into the winter months now. Doesn't feel like it though. Today was warm. It was here in Barrie, Ontario. Yeah, was Monday like was freezing for Halloween, but uh, my, uh, 17 degrees C, folks. Yeah. Hey, this week we're going to be speaking with uh, Ryan Kalember from Proofpoint. He's the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy. We're going to be talking about how uh, malware has made the transition onto the mobile, mobile platform. You want to stick around, learn how to protect yourself and what kind of risks are out there and uh, just what hackers are doing and why they're doing it. Uh, we're going to be speaking with him in just a couple of minutes' time. Sasha, over in the newsroom, how are you? I am great. I'm loving the weather. I have a sister in Whitehorse, so I feel guilty every time I call her now. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what's coming up in the Category5.tv newsroom. The timer has finally run out on Vine. When bug bounties go bad, a young hacker intent on cashing in for revealing an iOS 10 bug lands himself a criminal record instead. European court has ruled that Uber should pay their drivers at least minimum wage and provide paid vacation time. Facebook says they don't need your permission to use biometric data. And holy moly, a robotic kitchen that can cook like a master chef. Stick around. The full details are coming up later in the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Our live recordings are trusted to none other than... Kingston Technology. If you're looking to improve the performance of your computer, make sure you check out Kingston SSDs today. All right, tonight we've got a very fun show for you. My name's Robbie Ferguson. Please help me welcome Jeff Weston. I'm back. And over there in the newsroom is Sasha Dermatis. We got you working tonight with the uh, with the chroma key. That's all good. Technologically, we're making it tonight. All right. Uh, tonight, we've got Ryan joining us from Proof, Proofpoint, and uh, he is the Senior Vice President of Cyber Security Strategy. Ryan, it's nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us tonight. It's great to be here. Ryan, could you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about Proofpoint just out the gate so that we, uh, so the viewers who are not familiar with your company uh, can just kind of have a, a bit of a back uh, story as to what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're a publicly listed cybersecurity company. We focus on protecting the way people work, which is absolutely under assault these days, mostly via threats transmitted via email, social media, and as we're going to talk about tonight, mobile apps. Very good, thanks. Uh, now, you perform threat summaries and analyses over the course of uh, any given year, and your quarter uh, three summary just came out, uh, I believe, just a couple of days ago, if I'm not mistaken. So could you tell us a little bit about what you've seen as far as the trends go uh, in kind of the malware, uh, you know, how things have transitioned? I've seen a lot of transition over to mobile, and uh, that's a big concern. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've found in your current summary before we kind of really get into things tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we, we see a very broad swath of data. Uh, we see the email traffic for about uh, just north of 50% of the Fortune 100, some of the largest organizations in the world that operate in some of the most sensitive sectors. So mm. quite uh, a lot of the world's threats hit them in some way, shape, or form. And if you looked at the threat landscape in Q3, uh, it was basically a magnified version of what we saw in the three months prior to that. Uh, you had ransomware absolutely out of control on the email vector. 
Um, it, uh, one particular ransomware family, in fact, known as Locky for the file extension it creates, was responsible for about 97% of the billions wow. and billions of malicious messages that we saw so, in Q3. Are we talking like an evolution of, say, the CryptoLocker style ransomware here on PCs, or are we looking at, uh, has this evolved to, uh, to other platforms as well? It is mostly still PC specific. Uh, the CryptoLocker, CryptXX, there are actually dozens of families of, of ransomware. Yeah. It's actually up about 53% uh, in, the, in the last quarter alone. And they, they're all, of course, related in that they try and do similar things. There are actually kind of more interesting versions of ransomware emerging that do slightly different things. Uh, I would point out one of my personal, I wouldn't say favorites, but uh, mm. ones of interest that, uh, that's called Petya, P-E-T-Y-A that actually does what the malware in the Sony attack famously did. Really? It overwrites the master boot record of the computer, uh, rendering it unusable at the, the time it's, uh, it's actually rebooted. Um, so ransomware is continuing to evolve, not just on PCs, but it's been extending to other platforms as well. Wow. There is ransomware that now exists in the wild for Android devices. Uh, there were occasional flurries of little... Uh, Mac flare-ups uh, that didn't tend to be very common. There was actually even a ransomware variant for Linux that didn't uh, last very long before uh, someone ha actually figured out what their key generation algorithm was oh. and a very good way to actually decrypt wow. the files without paying the Bitcoin ransom. Just uh, for those viewers who are here tonight and are not familiar with terms, uh, the terminology that we may be using, uh, ransomware is is a fairly frightening um, type of malware because it can cause data loss, data theft, um, people um, being able to uh, compromise your files. And that's where things get very scary because you may have pictures of your kids or you may have um, company emails. Mm -hmm. You may have very important business data, customer information and things like that. And the reason that this type of malware is called ransomware is essentially it holds your files ransom and uh, then usually gives a prompt or something along those lines that says, hey, you need to call this number, you need to do this or that, and transfer money or provide a credit card information. They're holding your files ransom. And that's a very scary thing. So we're starting to see this on the Android platform, you say? We are. And... Uh and the, the, the malware landscape for mobile devices is, is one that's very much emerging. Uh, you see mobile malware basically a few years behind the evolution of the same sorts of threats that affect PCs. Okay. Uh, but they're, of course, extremely related in what they're trying to do um, and also how they represent themselves. If you think about the typical ransomware that a person would receive on a PC, it's probably actually going to arrive in an email. It'll be attached as a file that looks like a very legitimate business document, maybe a financial statement or an invoice that has some urgency to it. Right? Right. This is past due. Please open this up and pay it, something along those lines. The sort of thing that most of us would absolutely open. Uh, and, uh, and then it would, of course, if you clicked on the little yellow bar at the top, uh, actually start encrypting your files. On the mobile side, it's a little different in that the ransomware has to exist in the form of an app. That's really the only way that sort of thing can be installed on most mobile devices, mm. the way that the system architecture, operating system architecture effectively works. So what that means for the end user is you're probably going to receive mobile mounts, uh, ransomware via a link. Again, that could come to you via an email. It actually could come via an SMS as well. Uh, and if you go to that link and install an app, 
most of the time it's not going to come from Google Play or an right. otherwise sanctioned app store. Uh, that app can do whatever you entrust it to do on your device. Hmm. Uh, and most people, when they install something, just tap OK, 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 I want to use this app. Uh, and that's very much how ransomware tends to evolve uh, on the mobile platforms. Can I throw a scenario at you, Ryan, that my wife actually encountered just this past week? Um, sure. it just, just because what we've seen on PCs and now we are starting to see on, on mobile as well, um, and you've likely seen it uh, a lot longer time than I have um, because of the industry that you're in. Um, sure. My wife was apparently, this is the story anyway, so you can tell me if she, this is, this is the lie detector test here. So she was looking at news sites and reading blogs and things like that, and all of a sudden her phone, this is an Android device, said yep. your phone is infected. Now that to yep. me strikes me as possibly in, infected uh, advertising. Um, but what was different about this is she quickly exited out because she, she knows to you know, get out of anything that looks like it may be suspicious, uh, but then handed her phone to me in order to just make sure that everything's okay. And sure enough, on her dashboard was a root uh, tool for rooting the phone and something that is commonly used uh, by hackers as well as legitimate users to root a phone so that they have full access to the root file system. So how is it that something like that could get into her phone just surfing the web? So that is, it, I think your instincts were correct there. That is what we would call uh, malvertising. Right, so a fully legitimate site that engages with a third-party provider for to fill the advertising space on that site, which is equally true in a traditional web browser on a PC and in a mobile web browser uh, on a mobile device, you know, that they will serve up ads that very often are malicious and point to things that either automatically invoke a download or invoke a download in such a way that then the screen is immediately obscured. Uh, there's actually a, a strange sort of cousin to this, which even exists on iOS, which we often refer to as scareware, where uh, if you browse to the wrong site, and you could get there any number of ways, including via an advertising link from a fully legitimate site. Right. If you browse to the wrong site, it fills the screen, uh, and it basically enters into what is, a, what is effectively, and, and anyone who's ever taken a computer science course will know about this mistake, what's called an infinite loop. Right. So if you write a software program, usually incorrectly, it will essentially go around in circles uh, if you make a certain type of coding mistake. Uh, in this case, the attackers are actually intentionally making that mistake so that the phone effectively goes around in circles while the web browser is running what is actually JavaScript code for those who are technically interested. Right. Uh, it will then basically freeze the screen, display a message, a usually fairly threatening message, like the one I'm sure your wife saw, yep. uh, and that will tell you to either call a number or visit a website and pay some Bitcoin to unlock the phone. But what it really is, is just a broken piece of JavaScript on a website. Wow. But from the user's perspective, the phone becomes unusable because all the classic techniques don't work. You can't tap it and it, can't, and it won't do anything. More technically sophisticated users will probably immediately be thinking, but why don't you do a hard reset? That's actually the answer. You push both buttons on the phone for iOS and different uh, combinations for Android and just reset the phone, everything will be fine. Right. But actually, we saw fraudsters making quite a lot of money with this scam, even so, on uh, iOS devices. So is it quite often strictly uh, a trick? Is it a social engineering trick to try to get you to follow the directions, or is it actually infected the system? Most of the time, it is a trick. Uh, and that follows a general pattern in cybercrime. 
there is a huge shift towards social engineering, away from sophisticated technical exploits. This doesn't always get accurately captured in the media, where there is still quite a lot of focus on things like, uh, I would call out the Pegasus attack from a couple of months ago, which right. was a state-sponsored attack on a couple of journalists that actually involved three different iOS zero days chained together. Uh, that's not the, the likely thing everyone is going to encounter. Right. It is much more likely that you'll run into this sort of scare where it's designed to get a little money out of you. Mm, okay. So why would you say this type of attack is on the rise? You alluded to the fact that some of these malware creators are making money off of this, uh, off of tricking users. Obviously, that's the case. Uh, what, what is the driving force behind, uh, behind malware rising on, on the mobile platform? It's simple economics. I, I think uh, at, at this point, malware authors are basically businessmen in, in most ways. Uh, and their, their businesses look like SaaS businesses. Mm. They will invest their resources where the greatest return is. And as people move away from traditional computing platforms like PCs and onto mobile devices, more sensitive data goes there too. People yep. care more about the information that's stored there than they might care about the information on their own PC. So it's a very logical place for the malware authors to try and move to, even though actually most mobile operating systems, Android included, are a lot more secure than most historical uh, PC operating systems, right. simply because they were constructed at a later date when uh, more things were known about what good security practice looked like on an operating system. So when it comes to these you know, increased attacks, is there a specific group that's being targeted? Like, is it, are they primarily trying to hit like elderly people who are just getting onto these phones now have no clue what they're doing or is is there a target yeah. group that are, are they're looking to get or is it just a blanket and see who's out there i mean mobile malware at this point is very difficult to target so it is sort of spray and pray uh from the attacker's perspectives they're looking to put malicious links in very cheap ways on lots of sites where they're likely to encounter the sort of unsophisticated users you're talking about on the PC side of things, ransomware for PCs is often highly targeted at organizations that are going to have sort of things like file shares, which we saw variants like CryptXX go after. Those are the shared servers where a lot of different people put their files that, are ten that tend to be very valuable to, say, a hospital or a school district or, yeah. or a corporation. And that type of malware is very, very targeted at a different organization that's likely to have a lot of money because they care or a lot of money that they'll pay to unlock those files because they care a lot about the value of those files. On the, yeah. on the mobile yeah. side, it's much harder to do that same sort of targeting that is fairly easy to do based on something like an email address. Sure, I would expect that the PC end of things, based on the, what you're saying there, would be probably grander scale as well. Because if I were to, you know, as a if I was a hacker attacking a company, if I could get into one system that could go out on the network and encrypt all of the files on network shares, usually there's a right. you know a shared server somewhere that's got a Samba share that you know the whole company uses, then all of a sudden that's you're exactly. in big trouble. Right, and you actually have now seen ransomware go after that first. So it won't encrypt the local Right, piece. look for the, that network share first, yeah. yeah. And very often it might even look for the backups to that network share first before it starts <laughs> actually encrypting the primary, which is extremely oh. clever and extremely evil when you think about it. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Now, you mentioned you know, trying to go after things like maybe education settings, and immediately my thought goes to the fact that you know, with my kids' school, they don't send home or they're trying to move away from sending home 
uh, paper paper notes, mm-hmm. and it's the kids sure. have computers with emails, and they're emailing parents. And I'm thinking, man, if they can infect a school and then hit all the parents, you know, by sending Yikes. some link through an email, I mean, you could do some serious damage. So, uh, and they, and they absolutely have. Uh, I mean, the, if you think about how much you would personally pay for the files that are either on your mobile device or on your PC, yeah. if they were locked up by somebody and you didn't have them somewhere else. It's usually a big number, sure. and that's why the, the ran- ransomware actually is a is a reasonably quantifiable security problem, which actually yeah. sits in contrast to a lot of others. Uh, and it's because of one of the fundamental pieces of technology that's enabled this to grow and scale, which is Bitcoin. Right. So we know right. what Bitcoin wallets are associated with these ransomware campaign uh, attackers, and we can look because it's public ledger. Like how much money they're making off of all this, and it's, sure. it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're talking about anonymous currency here being used in, in an untrackable way. Um, to put things into perspective, because you think, you know, well, I wouldn't pay for my files and things, but let's say, you know, look at your phone. Pull out your phone and take a look now. Here we are in 2016. My phone is chock full of photos of my kids that mean a lot people take their phones to weddings and special events they take a bunch of pictures and they're not always prompt to back up those files Mm -hmm. and transfer them which means having at least two copies uh, and one copy that is completely air gapped from the network so we're talking an external hard drive stored in a drawer somewhere or something like that Um, but to put it into perspective here so if I had a hard drive with all of my data on it that was really important to me and this happens okay so here's a scenario you've got a hard drive that has all of the files that are your kids photos and all of these other things that mean a lot to you uh, to, to look at it from a consumer standpoint because your phone is generally your personal files um, and that hard drive crashes Will I go to data recovery and say, okay, I need these files. These are important to me. How much is it going to cost to get these files back? And this is a legitimate, my hard drive has crashed. I need these files back. And sometimes a data recovery can cost thousands of dollars in a worst case scenario. So when someone takes over my phone and says, for 300 pounds or you know, $600, you're going to get your files back, the temptation may be there to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that because these are important to me. It's my data recovery. It's the way to get these files back. Mm-hmm. Right. How dangerous is it for us, Ryan, to actually pursue that and hit that button that says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to buy my files back? I think that there are really two concerns that pop up there. Uh, and the first one, I would actually say, is an ethics concern. Uh, the people behind cybercrime are very bad people. Cybercrime has been used to fund real-world terrorism as well as cyber-terrorism. And giving money to bad people is not something anyone should do lightly. Uh, So what's best is, of course, to have that air-gapped copy of all of the data that you cared about that doesn't actually uh, run the risk of being uh, encrypted by ransomware. Uh, But the second concern is, is one of simple logistics. Uh, very often, these uh, ransomware uh, these ransomware variants will have a very short fuse, and they will count down, and they will they will often destroy your files along the way as they count down. Oh. And oftentimes, you don't have more than twenty four hours. So one of, one of the really 
I, I find this almost a disturbing practice, but it's, it's sort of the reality we live in. One of the practices that's starting to happen at larger companies is they will actually go out and, and buy some Bitcoin in advance because it's not the sort of thing that you can oh, go no. get from the bank down the street yeah. uh, just in case they need it for ransomware scenarios because this has become absolutely endemic. Uh, wow. And uh, they wouldn't be sending billions of emails if it, if it didn't work because they, they, they have to pay. Sure. Uh, some botnet operator. You know, that's a, that is a sad fact, Absolutely. to be sure. Uh, we're speaking with Ryan Kalimber uh, from uh, Proofpoint, and he is the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy there at Proofpoint.com. Uh, we need to ask it, and I hate to do this kind of a question, but Android versus iOS. We're talking about mobile tonight. Where are we safest between these two platforms? If you are talking about the average user, you're safest on iOS, uh, simply because... Well, that's all the time that we have for tonight, so uh, <laughs> not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. Uh, the, if, if you look at the basic facts that, that go into evaluating the threats that you will very likely encounter on yeah. an Android device versus an iOS device... Um, you really have no more than three major considerations. One is how easy it is to update the pad, update and patch that device as vulnerabilities are exposed. And here, this is not actually Android's fault. It's not anything that Google can control. But when you're on the carrier variants of Android and right. you don't get updates the yep. same way you do for iOS, which is much more controllable in that sense, your windows of exposure for these broad-based types of attacks, like stage fright most notably, are longer. And that is something that impacts the average user, especially when some of those, uh, those attacks can be spread by simple SMS uh, and, and not anything that can be controllable by the user. Right. The second piece of mobile risk that I think is relevant here is the apps themselves. Uh, it is very, very difficult, although possible, uh, to find your way to a rogue app store for iOS. Um, it actually, in most cases, involves doing one of two things, either uh, jailbreaking the device, yeah. which is complicated, and most users don't even have this technical sophistication to do. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it unless you are an expert and you're very attuned to uh, the security settings sure, that you're yeah. comfortable with. Um, or actually, the second way that you can often get an app that has not gone through any security review onto your device is to find your way to any one of the many, many rogue app stores out there. Uh, we monitor about 150 of them, actually, uh, that, uh, that do something that's kind of interesting. So if you are a company, say I'm Acme Inc., and I have an Acme app for my own employees, yep. but I don't want to put this in the public app store. Uh, I can go out to Apple and pay um, a few hundred dollars, I believe it is, for what's called an enterprise signing certificate. And then I can write my own apps using Xcode the same way you develop normal iOS apps. I can sign them using my own certificate, and then I can provision them using what's called an enterprise app store. So this Acme app gets onto all my users' devices, and it never gets to the public app store. Uh, that actually has a lot of legitimate business purposes that you can imagine. Sure it does, yeah. Uh, but cyber criminals have realized that, oh, wait, what if I steal one of those enterprise signing apps oh. and then come up with counterfeit versions of all those very popular apps that everybody likes to pay a lot of money for? Uh, I can set up one amazing 
uh, counterfeit app store, basically a Napster for apps um, for iOS, because there's actually no technical limit to how many apps you can sign with one enterprise signing cert. Ouch. So now we are actually seeing, we saw this actually for the first time at a very large uh, healthcare company. One of their users had an interesting app on, on his or her phone. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to give anyone's identity away. Sure, yeah, yeah. It was, actually, it was a uh, Lego Star Wars app. Okay. And that's not unusual at all. Yeah, I have that on my phone for the kids. Exactly. Uh, but this Lego Star Wars app didn't exist in any app store, and it was on an iOS device that wasn't jailbroken. So the question was, where did it come from? And uh, we eventually traced it back to a very large counterfeit app store in China called vShare. still running if you want to go check it out at vshare.com, where they, <laughs> you can find free versions of every popular paid app in both the Google Play and Apple app stores. And they're just absolutely identical except for the fact that there's probably malware in a good percentage of them. So that whole recommendation just there uh, will retract that. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> Don't install them. Yes. Yeah. So, I, like, I would just kind of qualify it in that the same thing is available on the Google site as well. It's actually yeah. easier to trust a uh, another app store in the the way the Android operating system is, is set up. If you go to settings, you can actually trust app stores. Right. Turn on like developer play. mode. Precisely. And yeah. you're and you're and it, you're not even actually having to find your way to one of these crazy off-brand app stores that are actually uh, very good at things like SEO. So a Google search for huh. the free Lego Star Wars app will likely guide you there, uh, but are not the sort of thing that the normal user who stays within the bounds of the app store is ever going to encounter. And the interesting thing about those apps is because they've never been reviewed by Apple or Google, they could be doing anything on the device. They could yeah. be a full-blown remote access Trojan because. They, they can access any private API, and they, they've never nice. gone through the traditional sorts of security checks. So actually, the average user who stays within the bounds of a typical app store will be fine on either platform. But lots of users um, really don't want to pay a few dollars for an app and find their way into a lot right. of trouble they probably weren't expecting. You know, and not to bring up old news here, Ryan, but we see it's not just for software piracy to get a free app. We saw with uh, Pokemon Go. Um, came oh, out right. yeah. and it wasn't available all around the world so people were hearing about it the news was talking about it but people couldn't install it so here in Canada for example people started going to these um, counterfeit app stores and installing yeah. it on their phone and that's a good scenario you know good example of hey it's it's more yeah. than just piracy absolutely and we found one of the one Pokemon Go variant that had uh, something called Droid Jack uh, which is basically surveillance software <laughs> in, wow. uh, in the code for the Pokemon Go app. So it's like super spy it. stuff here. It is. Yeah, like that's yeah. The, like if you ever watch Person of Interest and they they you know Blue Gap or whatever the phones and stuff and start <laughs> right. intercepting calls and right. So with those kind of apps, like I, I know when the um, the compromised Pokemon Go apps are coming out. I mean. You download the one from the app store, and there's, you know, oh, it wants to access your photos, your camera. That's the other thing, know, too, yeah. Your phone, right. but then you get the malicious one, and it wants to access everything. So right. if you get an app that you download and you notice it wants to access everything, is that a good tip-off that there's probably something wrong with the app? Or is that just possible that the programmers didn't really think too much and were like, oh, we need access to everything just in case? 
Like, is that a good indicator that there's something wrong with the app? It is a good indicator that there is either something wrong with the app or that the developers don't pay enough attention to security and privacy concerns. Right. <laughs> so uh, it is something always to be cognizant of that you are mostly going to be the one who subjects yourself to security risk on a mobile uh, platform simply because you know, they're very, very secure operating systems by default, both Android and iOS. The apps, though, very often have legitimate reasons to access your data, and Android and iOS don't control what those apps do with your data. Right. So if you are actually trusting that app and that app developer to access some data on your device, like your photos, like your location, like your emails, like your SMS logs, you should think very hard about whether to accept that or not. Uh, and just tapping through and accepting the default settings is very often not a good idea. But certainly from a user perspective, we're all fairly impatient now, and uh, it's not the sort of thing enough users pay enough attention to. Right. So that begs the question, if you're, you know, you've done your whatever it is you're doing, you've installed this app, is it just enough to delete the app to get rid of it? Like, how do you rid yourself to make sure that you're protected? And with that, what happens if you've done a backup? Like, say you do have one of those malicious apps on an iOS device, where when you do your backup, that backup is everything. If you do a restore, but, you get everything. Unlike hmm. with an Android, you can do your backup of your photos. Say you have to wipe your phone, you can throw your photos back on much easier. So right. how do you get rid of it? And when it comes to backups from your computer, could they still be infected? And are you just perpetually going in circles? <laughs> it, it is a good question, actually. Um, so one of the one of the examples that leaps to mind is uh, I was recently working with the Chief Information Security Officer of um, of an Ivy League-like university on the East Coast of the United States. Um, and uh, he had an interesting problem with a professor. The professor uh, just had somebody who was very clearly reading his email and downloading his files from a cloud file repository. And that person wasn't being terribly subtle about it. Uh, and it didn't matter how many times the professor changed his password. This was still happening. Uh, so the... Uh, the security officer quite rightly assumed that, uh, oh, this is probably a keylogger on your laptop. You've got some sort of malware there. So he brought in the laptop, which was a normal Windows PC, scanned it with every tool he had, and it came back completely clean. So scrambling a bit, he then asked the professor, do you have any uh, home PC that you uh, that you use? I said, no, absolutely not. This is my only PC. It's a laptop. Uh, and then uh, thinking quickly, the follow-up question was, all right, is there any other device where you enter your password? And the professor has said, sure, I have an iPhone. And so the um, security officer looks at the iPhone, completely normal, up to date, uh, not uh, jailbroken, no obvious signs of risk, but it had about 200 apps on it. So uh, he asked him to take out the little USB to lightning cable, plug it back in to iTunes, back up the phone, and then resync and uncheck the one box next to apps, which is something you can actually do. So he synced everything except the apps and then changed his password. And that worked. Huh. So one of those apps was just stealing his credentials over and wow. over and over again. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that we are seeing happen more and more frequently as you trust apps with even email credentials. So like a third-party email client, for example, would be the type of app you trust with this. 
And, and that's actually compromising data in a much broader way than just even what's on the mobile device. Scary stuff. Wow. Well, I appreciate your time so much, Ryan. I know we've been speaking for a little while about uh, mo- mobile uh, malware and how that uh, is impacting society and, and users in general. We all have a phone in our pocket. Um, the, the kind of the, the final discussion that we need to have with you is uh, what is there? You know, on my computer, I've got anti-malware and I'm able to protect myself um, from computer viruses with, uh, with anti-malware. On your phone, is it as simple as installing an application that will protect you from these kinds of things on both platforms, Android and iOS? It's not quite that simple, unfortunately, because there's really actually two things that you would worry about. Um, One is these sort of rogue apps that we've been talking about, which are often hard to identify. And many of them actually make it into the proper app stores. So what you really have to be vigilant about as a user is what those apps have access to in terms of your own data, is they could be something that you wouldn't actually call malware, but they would be doing something that you would never think is okay with your data. So if they, if you had, for example, and this is a very common example, a, a business card scanner app that just uploaded a business card and turned it into a contact via what's called optical character recognition. Sure. So you don't have to enter it yourself. And it has access to your contacts, obviously, because it's uploading contacts. Very often, those... Uh, those apps will just sell your information as well as the information of everybody who is in your contacts to marketing firms. Wow. And that's the sort of thing that just is endemic and is hard to identify. Um, And so really it's a matter of understanding what apps you've given what permissions to and trying to be uh, thoughtful about that. The second thing that is worth pointing out is Wi-Fi, right? So the same way that you can connect to a malicious Wi-Fi network with a PC, can mitigate that risk slightly by using a VPN. Uh, you can very easily do that on a, with a wireless device as well, or a, a cellular device. And those Wi-Fi networks that you often find in airports that pop up, free Wi-Fi with a hash yeah. or something, so they show up alphabetically towards the top of the list of SSIDs, very, very likely to be fraudulent. And those very often do what you call right in the middle attacks and can sniff things like passwords if you happen to enter them in a web browsing session while you're connected to that rogue Wi-Fi. There are a few apps in the app store that can actually help you identify rogue Wi-Fi networks, and uh, those are very, very good ideas from a security best practices standpoint for everyone, especially those of us who travel frequently. So what you're saying is when I see that open network that says FBI surveillance van, I should connect <laughs> to the Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, it raises so many... So many frightening concerns, and you know, you, we're in this world where I look for open Wi-Fi and I want to use it, yeah. and I save on my data plan because it's free and available to me. So maybe we just got to watch for uh, for ones that we know and trust. Uh, we're speaking with Ryan from Proofpoint. Uh, he is the uh, S- SVP of Cybersecurity Strategy. Ryan, where can we get more information, resources to help us stay safe on our mobile devices? So at proofpoint.com, we focus on mobile quite heavily in our threat research. Uh, You can find that at what we call our Threat Insight blog. Uh, We wrote about the Pokemon Go malware. We wrote about what we're seeing as a broader trend in Q3 in that quarterly threat report you mentioned earlier. Uh, And we also have quite a lot of uh, best practices for everyone when they use mobile devices that are all up there on proofpoint.com. Very good. Ryan, thank you so much for your time tonight. All the best and uh, great speaking with you. 
It was a pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Thanks. We've got to take a really quick break. This is Category 5 Technology TV, and we will be right back after this. Jeff Weston. Yaman. You're building a brand new beautiful website. What? Aren't you? No. Am I? You're a terrible actor. What? This is where acting comes into play. Oh, I didn't know we were acting. You're supposed to act. Okay, fair enough. I'm building a really cool website. Are you building a really cool website? You need hosting. One of the things about a hosting account is you don't want to have limitations put on your website. It's true. How much hard drive space do you have? How many email accounts? How many domains can point to it? Well, we've got an amazing deal for you. For a very limited time, cat5.tv slash dreamhost. For just $5 and a bit of change per month, you are going to get unlimited website hosting, unlimited email accounts on that hosting uh, service. You are also going to receive a free domain name. So your own .com. Nice. To put that amazing website that you've been working on it's on true. there. If you run, if you want to build a WordPress site, fine. Sign up. Cat5.tv slash dreamhost. Just don't put Panama Papers on it. Just don't do it. But hey, uh, it's a great deal, folks. Best deal you're going to find. $5 and change per month. Go to cat5.tv slash dreamhost. Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV. It's episode number 476. And it's Wednesday, the 2nd of November 2016. Uh, we're going to get into it, but uh, before that time, we're going to jump over to the newsroom. Sasha Dermatis is over there and eagerly waiting to tell us all about the tech news this week. Sasha, over to you. I'm Sasha Dermatis, and here are the top stories for the week of November 2nd, 2016. Twitter announced Thursday that it's killing off the Vine short video platform in the coming months. When Twitter launched the micro video feature back in 2013, it quickly became a viral enigma, challenging users to cram as much comedy or culture into each 480 by 480 pixel frame. Users will still be able to keep and view their Vines. In the announcement, Vine says to all the creators out there, thank you for taking a chance on this app back in the day back in the day being three years ago. Long time ago. <laughs> the service enjoyed 200 million users in 2015. Some of its biggest superstars include Canadian board Andrew King Batch Bachelor, with more than 16 million followers and Toronto-based singer-songwriter Shawn Mendes. Vine videos arguably created its own genre of meme thanks to the hypnotic nature of its six second clips that loop by default. Vine co-founder Russ Yusupov has little positive to say about the shutdown, tweeting, don't sell your company shortly after the announcement. Yusupov, along with co-founders Don Hoffman and Colin Kroll, sold Vine to Twitter in 2012 before its wide release. I love the little Vine loops, so I'm, <laughs> I am sad. I will watch them always, as long as I can, so... Hopefully somebody else picks up the company. I don't know. See, what I don't understand, though, is why they would get rid of it. I mean, this is such a popular thing. I mean, if you look at many social media, there's always these collections of all these great Vine videos. I mean, I think of the one uh, picture of the guy who's like, story time. And then I'll do all these... Like, story time? I'm like, hammer time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like, I I enjoy these videos, so I don't understand why they're pulling the plug. I think it's my guess. 
Twitter ain't making money. But it's not. They got to start cutting back. They're letting go of staff. They're letting go of services. They're trying to bring themselves from here and get back up to here, right? I get that, but then sell it off. I mean, it's still wildly popular. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, we'll I, see what happens next. I know yeah. a guy who's a Vine star from here in Barrie, but I don't know what he's going to do now. At the ripe old age of like 22, I think he's going to have to get a real job. He's going to do something that lasts longer <laughs> than six seconds. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Can I get your order? I'm at, oh, sorry. All right. In other news, an 18-year-old has been charged with three counts of computer tampering after accidentally swamping Arizona's emergency services with thousands of bogus 911 telephone calls. Meet Kumar Haitubahi Desai told police he had tried to share on Twitter a link to JavaScript code that exposed iOS bugs, making phones freeze or restart. He had hoped Apple would pay him a bug bounty for the information about the flaws, but had mistakenly linked to an earlier version of his app that made that had made users' phones keep on dialing 911. In a statement, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office said the link had been clicked almost 2,000 times, threatening emergency services across Arizona. Because the 911 service is classified as critical infrastructure, interfering with its operation is treated in Arizona with the same severity as human trafficking or second-degree murder. Oh. Mm-hmm. Talking to police after his arrest, Mr. Desai said the bug he had been planning to exploit had been sent to him by an online friend. Using it, he intended exploiting it to make a benign but annoying app that people would find funny. Writing on the Ars Technica news site, Dan Gooden said the incident contained a valuable lesson for anyone getting started in security research. Hacking devices or networks without the explicit permission and cooperation of their owners is dangerous and can result in significant legal penalties. I would find this funny if it did not actually bring into play the 911 situation. Because I can understand why it would carry like a second degree murder charge if you are hampering the response time for somebody who's actually in critical need. That's a big deal. And we haven't heard if anything like that. I mean, how would they know, right? I can't get through to 911 because they're swamped with these bogus calls calls from a piece of malware i'm a programmer and one of the things that you know i adopted early on in my programming career is you don't put things into code like automatically dial 911 or you know swearing on in in or silly things in uh, in placeholders for example when you're developing something for someone because if that ever gets forgotten or you forget to remove it, um, hello, you should have used lorem ipsum, See, and that's why it's there. I, I don't want to be that guy because I know I'm not that old, but as soon as the news started, I hear 18-year-old. I'm going, well, poor, that explains Poor guy. It. Like, well. he's not really oh sure life life experience makes you think about these things ignorance isn't innocence by any means but there's no way he ever ever intended this that's how it sounds yeah exactly i mean when i was in my teens and i was getting into programming stuff i mean i know for myself i'm like what all can i do how can i how far can i push this i was writing autoexec.bat viruses well, yeah. And so, distributing I mean, them at school. In your teens, you kind of like, 
how far can I push this? So the sure. fact that the guy is 18, I'm thinking, chances are it was some old file that he created. It was a mistake. If it was, oh, some 40-year-old did it, I'd go, yeah, I don't see that as a mistake. But that's just because I automatically default to ageism to a If you're 40, degree. we expect you to know better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad for this poor kid. Um, oh, criminal too. record at 18. He can't even get that expunged, I'm sure. Well, poor he guy. wasn't convicted, though, was he? He was just charged. He'll be convicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Ugh. He may have a plausible defense. He needs lawyers like these lawyers in this story. That's true. Okay. Uber drivers in Britain should get paid vacation days and guaranteed minimum wage, a tribunal said Friday in a ruling that the company will appeal. The G Megabytes Labor Union says the decision will have a major impact on the drivers who argued that they should get the labor rights of employees, not not self-employed workers. The Central London Employment Tribunal's decision Friday affects as many as 30,000 drivers. Uber argues it is a technology company that links self-employed drivers with people who need rides. It also says drivers should seek arbitration in the Netherlands where Uber's European operations are based. Nigel McKay, the attorney representing the workers, argues Uber drivers often work very long hours just to earn enough to cover their basic living costs. It is the work carried out by these drivers that has allowed Uber to become the multi-billion dollar global corporation that it is. He goes on to say, we are pleased that the employment tribunal has agreed with our arguments that drivers are entitled to the most basic workers' rights, including to be paid the national minimum wage and to receive paid holiday, which were previously denied to them. Uber, based in San Francisco, California, says it will appeal the decision and that in the meantime, it only applies to the two people who brought the suit. Okay, so... Uh, those are pretty fantastic lawyers to make that happen. <laughs> um, really, eh? I think that Uber was always supposed to just be a supplementation to a regular income. I don't think it was ever supposed to be full-time employment for anybody. So I don't know about paid vacation time. Yeah. Personally. See, okay. <laughs> this is a Jeff question because yeah. he works for the the unions. Yeah. yeah see, so. I, my entire career is delved in labor law. Uh, so when this story came out, uh, it didn't matter what was happening around me. There could have been gunshots going off, and I was glued to my phone reading this one. I, um, I've been waiting for this decision. Mm. I really have. Ever since Uber came around, I've said this was going to happen. And there's a couple reasons. It's a fine line, eh? It is a very fine line, but I think there's a couple reasons for it. And, and one of them is the fact that it's... They're not entrepreneurs and self-employed in the fact that they're drumming up their own business. Mm. They have a company that is providing the work for them. And while Uber can try and argue that, oh, we're just contracting them out, there's no contractual agreement that says, I am a subcontractor to Uber. Um, In the way that it's set up, it's I download the app. I just make it happen. They find the work for me. I work on their behalf. They're the middleman with the money. Like everything about it to me screams employment. I, yeah. Does it does it start to does it start to feel like to you that Uber is like the company that is evading taxes by putting their money abroad, in a way? But they're doing it through their employees. 
if you will, the right. people who are doing the work for them. And it, this is something I I've just, never thought about until this like occurred, when right? When you choose to be an Uber driver, you download like the driver app or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I've seen somebody with it. I've never done it myself. But you choose when you want to work. You don't have to work anytime. You don't want to work. Is you, there a qualification you, process? Like there has to be a way. I've never used Uber, I, but you do you have to You get a criminal record check, I think. A criminal record check, which is typical of and any And you take a picture of it. You take a picture of your license, a picture of your insurance, and you upload it to them. Like an application? Yeah, but, but you can work for 15 minutes a week if you want, or 15 minutes a month if you want. You can decline rides. You can just straight up say, no, you don't want to do it. What other job can you do that? Okay, okay, I, I get that. But the thing is, I mean, if you look at uh, when the terrorist attack took place... How in- did this turn to that? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Here, here's, here's where I'm going. In Australia, do you remember um, the terrorist attack in the coffee shop? Yeah. It was a big PR nightmare for Uber because when that terrorist attack hit, they have their software based on demand sets the prices and the prices skyrocketed to like a hundred bucks a kilometer um, just to get people out of the core, the downtown core when the, when the shots started firing. And so if you are a contractor, chances are you're setting your own rate. Uber is setting those rates. You are just the driver. So when you look at that kind of stuff, Uber's in complete control of every element of that job. The only thing they don't have control over is your hands on the steering wheel. Hmm. And so from that but, standpoint, but, but. I look at it and I go, I think it's a very valid argument that they are, in fact, employees. Yeah. I work for a company who sets what we charge the customer mm-hmm. and what I get paid. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like anyone you know? Rhymes with boober? <laughs> but you're an employee. <laughs> I'm an employee. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But so, do you get to decline work? Do you get to decline work? I get to decline work. If you I do? want to decline work, I will decline work. Absolutely. Huh. I am the red flag All right. man. Okay. So yeah. I'm like 49% on your side. Really? Yeah. You could determine that much? 49%, not 48? It's Well, I just, I have to give myself the, a majority on this one only because I kind of am team Uber on this. <laughs> She's like, I am going to be an Uber this driver right after the show. This has nothing to do with, with whether Uber is a great service or not. I oh, mean, sure. I mean, I, I'm I've looking never, at the fact... But what are they? What are they defined as? Right. I, I think don't think that you can be an Uber driver and work 15 minutes a month and get vacation pay. Sure. No, well, that, no, 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 because then you'd be part-time. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, but the people who, what's in question here is the people who are putting in 15-hour days like a taxi driver. Right. Should they be compensated like a taxi driver? Regardless, whether they want to be an irregularly scheduled employee that picks up shifts on their choice. I mean, when I worked for for the government, I could turn down any shift I wanted. If I didn't want to go in for a month, I didn't go in for a month, but I I picked up the work. Is that just before you got fired? (laughs) But I mean, I was always available to work. I mean, you look at where Uber's going, where they're looking to do Uber Air with flights. Yeah. I mean, are they going to say that, I mean, if I'm going to hop into a plane and have them fly me, I can guarantee you. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna make sure you just sign we, up to be an Uber pilot? I, I hope that they are an employee that at that on point. The hook, because if that plane goes down, mm-hmm. I don't want my family suing just some random guy who you know, crash the plane, I want to make sure that Uber's on the hook. And if you look at, um, there was a, um, something with Amazon, I want to say with one of the states, um, if you can't get a hold of, this came out just yesterday, okay. I think it was, if you, if you can't get a hold of, of um, 
the company that sold you bad product, mm -hmm. you can go after the seller. So does that mean if in this case that they could also go after Uber? I mean, that's a whole other legal side of it. But I, I totally think, totally think they are employees. See the comment thing below? See that field down there? Please. Comment on this. Post totally your comments. Employees. I don't think Resolve so. Resolve the conversation below I think in the comment section. Vote Sasha. Vote Team Sasha on this one. Nope. Facebook Inc.'s software knows your face almost as well as your mother does. And like mom, it isn't asking your permission to do what it wants with old photos. Facebook encourages users to tag people in photographs that they upload in their personal posts and the social network stores the collected information. The company uses a program it calls DeepFace to match other photos of a person to match the other photos of a person. Alphabet Inc.'s cloud-based Google Photos service uses similar technology. While millions of internet users embrace the tagging of family and friends in photos, others worried that there's something devious afoot or trying to block Facebook as well as Google from amassing such data. As advances in facial recognition technology give companies the potential to profit from biometric data, privacy advocates see a pattern in how the world's largest social network and search engine have sold users viewing histories for advertising. The companies insist that gathering data on what you look like isn't against the law, even without your permission. If judges agree with Facebook and Google, they may be able to kill off lawsuits filed under a unique Illinois law that carries fines of $1,000 to $5,000 US each time a person's image is used without permission. Big enough for a liability headache if claims on behalf of millions of consumers proceed as class actions. A loss by the companies could lead to new restrictions on using biometric in the US, similar to those in Europe and Canada. Wow. See, I didn't know that we had restrictions in Canada, but I will tell you that that whole like deep face technology always mistakes me and my sisters as each other. Oh, yeah. So for me, it's just funny because, you know. Well, and that's pr pretty small scale. Now, yeah. I have I have like little Star Trek trinkets around the studio and everything. We used to have a bobblehead that was Spock. So yes. and I have things all over the studio like my coaster. Right. And. And, and it's not just these companies that are doing it. Um, Twitter was experimenting with it for a while there, and I don't see that they still use it, but they must in the back end. I had a, a studio picture that I posted, and Twitter said, Robbie Ferguson posted this with Leonard Nimoy, and it had a tag going to his Twitter account. Wow. And that freaked me right out. Like, I was like, okay, that's cool for one thing. The technology is astonishing, mm -hmm. but also a little bit creepy but at the same time creepy but cool creepy but cool i think it's the next gen of where things are going to have to go for surveillance and you're going to see it when it comes to you know we we talk about you know the threats that are out there exactly. and they have to be able to track these things I mean, aka person of interest right i mean truth be told they have cctv everywhere in europe right exactly. so i mean so everybody implement knows this and integrate this and exactly. boom I mean, there's a little bit you have to be a little bit worried i want to use that yeah. 23 and me genetic test but I'm scared that I'm sending my DNA to somebody who I don't know. I, I want to mm. know the results. <laughs> okay. I know that I'm the guy that for some reason defaults to conspiracy theory and anti-robots taking us over and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not... Why does this one come as a shock? Like, technology is going this way. Why are people freaking out about it as if it's like some big issue? I've known this is coming for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think from it's science fiction gone reality. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but I mean, this is this. The You're problem right. with this situation is we're dealing with it from a legal standpoint and not looking at it from a, a morality standpoint. And our world globally has moved away from the human element to the legal element, and we are now legal entities as far as our own basic human rights. We're nothing more than contractual obligations and do's and don'ts. Does it violate my rights that my picture is recognized by an artificial intelligence when if I'm standing in a room, Sasha can see me from across the room and say, oh, there's Robbie. Recognize? No. What to do with you? Yes. What to do with me? That's the issue. Is they're saying you like fly a drone in and shoot me in the head with a rubber bullet? This this whole thing is saying you shouldn't be able to use my biometrics to earn a profit, and I have to. It's data. Data is money. That's the currency. Why is Windows 10 free? Yeah, and Facebook is free. I get that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the business model. Sign up for something that's completely free. Nothing is free. I I I agree. But let people those apps. We talked about apps that ask for all this access because it's a free app. You can opt out by not downloading the app. Yeah, exactly. See, and this is the thing. I mean, Facebook changed the way that we do the world. Before Facebook, it was you had to give explicit permissions mm. for anything to happen. And then Zuckerberg and his, and his team came up with this brilliant idea to say, you use our app. Yeah, you you're volunteering it. You're giving it. on everything, and you tell us what not to use. And, and we'll change that halfway through after you've said exactly. no after you've said no we'll eventually just say yes and you'll have to go back and find it and, and say it's no again the it legal, has changed moral everything the absolutely world. it has absolutely. changed remember back in interrogation not that i've ever been in an interrogation room but they used to try and like drag information out of you about who your friends are and who you, where yeah, right. you were and everything and now all they'd have to do is go on your facebook and be like oh i have a list of all of your friends mm-hmm. i know exactly where you've been i know what you've eaten in the past 14 days <laughs> yeah they have everything now. <laughs> we have pictures to prove <laughs> exactly. it. You know, it's not the end of the world, though. I mean, this is the way technology is going. The way that we will know that the apocalypse has come is when robots take over our kitchen. Oh. I mean, it's not possible, right? It's never, ever going to happen. It's true. Well, apparently, having a home-cooked meal from the kitchen of Gordon Ramsay could become a reality. In 2018, Moly will launch the world's first fully automated and integrated intelligent cooking robot. What? Yes. It's a robotic kitchen that has unlimited access to chefs and their recipes worldwide. And not only can this robotic chef cook over 100 different meals for you, it will clean up after itself, too. Ah, bless you, robot. According to Mark Olianik, CEO and founder of Moly Robotics, the way this machine works for the end user is by specifying the number of portions, type of cuisine, dietary restrictions, calorie counts, desired ingredients, cooking method, and chef and so on for the recipe from the recipe library first. Then with a single tap, you could choose your recipe, place the individual prepackaged containers of measured, washed, and cut ingredients on designated spots, and press start for the cooking process to begin. Moly consists of all the necessary cabinetry, appliances, and utensils. It starts with two special sensors which record each movement of the actual master chef while they cook away wearing special gloves. This kitchen then replicates the movement with two fully articulating robotic arms and can cook anything just like a human chef. 
Since the Mooly Kitchen could essentially cook any downloadable recipe on the internet, the food robotics AI startup expects to include a share and sell your own recipes feature, where consumers and professional chefs could access and sell their ideas via the digital style library of recipes database. Designed to work with anyone who has the desire and the ability to cook, this platform for collective creativity and knowledge could become a launching pad for aspiring chefs. While you may need a Wi-Fi for pulling in new recipes, recording a new dish, or sharing your work, the database of recipes that comes with the kitchen is available offline. What's more, the robotic kitchen can always be used manually too. Questions, comments, thoughts. You know concerns? what I think is the first thing that well, the first thing that came to mind is what, right? But then I realized, think about um, educational facilities where the teacher could um, download these recipes and actually use it to guide would-be chefs to learn now of course there's the other side of it that says they're going to you know gordon ramsay can now open a thousand kitchens around the world and it will be his cooking oh yeah that's true i was thinking more along the lines of um having say your grandmother make her her famous wow. lasagna and then you can eat grandma's lasagna oh my till the end of time right you not can, only that made me think See, we're just playing off of each other right here. What about grandma when she can't cook that lasagna anymore, but she loves to eat it? Right. Right? I love this so much. Oh, my gosh. And there's so much And truth be told, I'm not a great cook. Like, I'm not a super great cook, but I want to be. So this would be great for me. I could just watch this robot cook. And then, like it said, I mean, I can just turn off the probably the arms. And, not going to happen. No. Right? You're just going to sit uh, there drinking your whiskey, watching, watching. the robot. Robot, make me. <laughs> okay. I love it. How do you how do you feel about this, Jeff? All right. <clears throat> Here comes the opinion, folks. So we know how I feel about robots taking over the world. This is just the kitchen. I realize this is just the kitchen. As you're reading the news story, there's one question that's coming up in my head, and it goes back to the you made the comment that there's two sensors that watch what the chef is doing. So the question is, in the middle of making a beef wellington, will these hands drop the knife, flip the bird, and then call somebody a fat cow? <laughs> oh, oh Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay. <laughs> oh, Gordon Ramsay, yes. what have you done with this program? <laughs> like, can it. he cook any meal without doing something like that? And yeah. Like... There's no auditory component. That's fantastic. Oh, I bet you they'll include it. <laughs> Jeff, I will tell you... But then the other question is... I'm sitting here between Sasha and Robbie, and both of you are talking about replacing Grandma with a robot. No, supplement, supplementing Grandma with a robot. Helping Grandma so that she can cook once and eat her lasagna forever. I, I do believe it was Grandma's lasagna, and then you could have it till the end of time, implying when Grandma passes away, she's replaced by robotics. But you can eat her lasagna. You can pass the delicious taste on. That's true. Yeah. See, why Robots not? are going to win you more... over, and if they have to do it through your stomach, they will. But, but why not just <laughs> learn to cook the lasagna no. yourself? You can't. Yeah, of course. But there's something about grandma's robot hands 
cooking you up a lasagna while you sit there drinking your whiskey. Okay. 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 Let's take this like let's take this on the poutine turn. Okay. So today whoa, whoa, I was whoa. in the careful how you bring up poutine. That is a sacred food. I know, but what I'm saying is I am talking in the chat room about how poutine is amazing. Yes, it is. And they don't get it. They don't get it because they're not from Canada. So what if I upload how like a delicious poutine recipe? Oh sure, yeah. But right, and then their what? robots can make it, and then they can understand. Okay, yeah, yeah, but yeah. what kind of poutine are you making that requires robotic? It's fries, gravy, cheese, curds. Think about that. Curds. Yeah, it's got to be curds. curds. But w- <laughs> wait a minute. What if you do the poutine recipe, and uh, you did the recording, and it was this nice russet potato? And then Jeff takes it home and loads up the recipe, and he's got this larger potato. And the ingredients and the recipe, the mix, everything is completely they, off. I feel like they must have controls for that. They have controls? Well, they it must. Did, I, I could yeah. be wrong. Maybe I misheard you, but it, it did say about prepackaged food and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, mm-hmm. so essentially, this is nothing more than a glorified microwave. No, no. This is fresh food. This is not But it said it was prepackaged. You can't have prepackaged fresh. You can go into a grocery store and buy a pre-cut-up fresh turnip. Yes. Right? So, Way easier than cutting your own turnip. Right. But so now take that and put that on a tray and say, okay, now, robot, make me a turkey dinner. And it includes the pre-cut turnip. I don't know. I, I, Can we interview I these still people? Would Can we find yeah, let's interview Moly, them. Let's, get let's a, interview Molly Kitchens. Let's get a dozen of these Molly Kitchens and Can we just distribute do them around. Yeah, let's yeah. I'd rather that. make my bowl of Cheerios myself. Oh, yeah. Just... <laughs> Just From saying. scratch. Aim high. Reach for That's the stars. Mm. Thanks for watching the Category 5.TV newsroom. Don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight Linux bias. And for more free content, be sure to check out our website. From the Category 5.TV newsroom, I'm Sasha Dermatis. Thanks, Sasha. This is Category 5 Technology TV, episode number 476. I can't believe we're here already. And it is November 2016. And it's a warm November day. A warm November day. Mm-hmm. So, how's everybody been? It's been a busy show. It has been a and busy show. And we haven't had time to talk about anything but robots and poutine. <laughs> so, nice to see you guys. Um, we've got our new website up at Category5.tv. A lot of work going into that. Um, and very, very excited about it. This week, uh, I've introduced uh, the ability to go back in time with our seasons so you can actually view past seasons of each of the shows and in fact uh, the newsroom is a part of that so Sasha's segment and Jeff you filling in as well uh, you can now go back and watch some of the newsroom segments and what's nice about the newsroom is now we also include all of the textual um, um, stories so you can read or watch and we're going to be improving that over time as well so that you can actually trigger um, through links certain stories and things like that. So I'm very, very excited about the awesome. newsroom feature. Um, what else is new? I mean, the, going back to the season, uh, looking back at the seasons, we've got uh, seasons 3 through 10 of Category 5 Technology TV are already done. Wow. So those are there and ready for you. We've got seasons 1 and 2 of New Every Day. Season 1 of uh, Nature Sounds of Ontario, Canada. We've got Season 1 of The Pixel Shadow. We've got Seasons uh, 8, 9, and 10 of the Category 5.TV Newsroom. So you can actually go back and watch all of these shows on our website, Category5.TV. 
Wow, there's lots going on. Yeah, and uh, last week we opened up the Skype lines, and Sasha and I were wondering, yeah, hey, how come nobody nobody wants in? to talk to us? Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I found out after the fact because tonight we were setting up Skype, and it turns out Skype was not working. So that was my bad. Technology fail. We'll blame it on Microsoft because they bought Skype and they broke it. Um, so I apologize to those of you who uh, did try to call in. If you happened to dress up as we demanded of you, um, please do send us a photo of you in your costume. We would love that. We'd love to see it we and, uh, and post it. We've requested. We did not demand it of you, but we really want to see your pictures. Even if you have to dress up today and pretend like it was then. I don't know if you can change the date. <laughs> it, everybody, will, everybody will dress up in steampunk and yeah, get the extra please points. Please dress up and send us your pictures. There I would love go. that. Uh, Sasha, your laptop came into me this week um, yes. because you were having trouble with it. What was going on? Uh, well, I was trying to pre-read the news so yep. that I was, you know, so I could read it smoothly. Yeah. Um, and it kept crashing. Can so, I show folks what it looks like from your perspective? Yeah. So yeah. basically, the the newsroom looks a little something like this to Sasha. So it's a little bit off on your screen, but basically she reads it like that. So she does that through her web browser. This is tonight's news. And when you do that, mm -hmm. it lets you kind of get familiar. So what was, what was happening with your it was, computer? It was crashing. Oh, the story was about something crashing. What was my story last week? It was, it was just hilariously timed. But it kept crashing now the day before that i had updated chrome but i'm not very oh, yeah. I'm, i don't know exactly what i do when i'm on my computer i'm going to be really honest that i definitely turn it on and it's got to go yeah I, I turn it on and i just expect bam it's going to be perfect and work every time so i couldn't believe how long it's been since we actually looked at that laptop we installed zorin os on it right and I way love back zorin. in the day zorin's great um but it was version eight version eight What's wrong with that? That's very, very old. Oh. And that's where we're getting a hang-up because your updates had failed and things were breaking because the old operating system was no longer supported and so the repositories were broken. So you were getting mixed packages. Oh. So what I ended up doing is I wiped, well, I backed up all your files for you and then I wiped the hard drive and installed Ubuntu Mate. And Ubuntu Mate is a nice, sleek OS. I'm interested to hear from you, Sasha. Having come from Zorin OS, which has a real Windows 7 kind of feel, it's very sleek. Uh, probably one of the nicest operating systems as far as Linux goes from my perspective for an, a novice Linux user. I think they've done a really fantastic job of the layout and the way that it works. Um, I'd be interested to know how Ubuntu Mate works for you. I'm excited to try it. I'm scared because Change I really is like... Change no, never good. Yeah, well, not change is never good. I do accept change. I do, however, realize my limitations in that I'm not very savvy. And and although I am really in love with the idea of having a new OS or a distro, or I'm going to say it wrong. You're, you're totally right on both okay. fronts, yeah. I am scared I will do something wrong because I feel like I did something wrong to make this problem in the first place happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? Um, it's as simple as knowing how to open up Facebook and uh, bring up that private chat with Robbie and say, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. What do I do? <laughs> what do I do? And there you have it. And for you at home, you can just email me live at category5.tv. But that's all the time that we have tonight. This week is done. Wow. 
That was a believe. good show. That was a rocking show, folks. Great interview. Hey, please comment below. Tell us what you thought. If you're watching this on YouTube, give us the big thumbs up. Give us the su subscribe. You're going to see the buttons in just a couple of moments' time, including Patreon, which is a great way that you can support the show yes. by giving us 25 cents per episode. That's all we ask, and that is going to help us to pay the bills. And uh, that is a fantastic thing. We appreciate all of those of you who uh, have taken that on. So thank you. All right. Good time. Great show, everybody. Well done. Nice awesome. to see you both, and nice to see you. Take care. Bye. Good night.